Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be considered as a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone. It's your host, Adam Childers, here on the podcast Briefly Legal, brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy. Well, you know where I'm at, everyone. I'm here in the Crow's Nest in downtown Oklahoma City, uh, enjoying, uh, you know, uh, a turbulent week uh, of weather that's uh, kind of turned cold on us again. But I'm promised that spring is still on the horizon. So that's what keeps me going each and every morning, thinking about that uh, coming our way. What also keeps me going? is thinking about uh, our uh, next episodes of Briefly Legal. And today is uh, is a really exciting one. It's going to be uh, part one of a two-part series. Uh, I guess that's contingent on whether or not uh, the vote turns out the way some are prognosticating it uh, next week. But uh, that's right. We're talking about state question 820, uh, which is adult use marijuana for the, uh, the crafters of the state question, more often talked about as recreation marijuana, but uh, that is on the ballot Tuesday, March 7th. So as we do this podcast today, we're just uh, really just days away from that. And so, of course, what better person to bring in to talk about that than uh, the chairperson of our appellate group and someone who's been very, very involved in this entire state question process, and that's Melanie Regani. Melanie, say hello to everybody. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to have you here. So your first, it's your inaugural voyage on uh, on briefly legal, and so of course, when we saw that state question A twenty was you know about to be voted on, and we knew the, uh, the all the hard work that you put in behind the scenes uh, with the folks that are, are pushing that initiative, we knew that we need to make sure that we had you here uh, on the show to talk about it. And it's not just the fact that you've had the uh, the background of working on this particular uh, piece of legislation; it was also really just your background that you were one of just a handful of practitioners in the state that even do initiative petition processes. There's just not many people who know how they work and and, and you know them uh, backwards and forwards so much so that you've been called upon to uh, argue uh, before the Oklahoma Supreme Court on when some of these issues have come up in the past. So I'm really excited to have you here, Melanie, and and to talk about State Question 820 and, and, and figure out kind of what happens next. So I guess the, the best place to start is kind of setting the, the, the background here. So kind of tell Tell us what's what is being voted on next Tuesday. What is it that State Question 820 uh, entails? Sure. So State Question 820 would legalize adult use or recreational marijuana in Oklahoma for adults over the age of 21. But it's not just a legalization free-for-all. State Question 820 would also create a licensing and regulatory system, um, seed-to-sale tracking, ways to make sure that the marijuana industry is regulated, controlled, and the products that are produced are safe. Um, It would also impose a 15% excise tax on every sale, um, something that has been estimated to produce about $400 million in revenue for the state uh, in the next five years if it passes. And most importantly, to me, the law would create a pathway for people who have previously been convicted of marijuana-related offenses to be resentenced or have their criminal convictions expunged and give people a fresh start for something that Oklahomans 
don't think should be a criminal offense anymore. Yeah, it's that, that last piece is really intriguing to me. I don't know that it's got as much fanfare and, and coverage uh, in the lead up to this vote, but that sounds like an extremely uh, important part of this in terms of, you know, uh, criminal reform. And as you say, you know, trying to give somebody a fresh start who may have done something a few years ago that now everyone, you know, over the age of 21 potentially could walk in and do uh, without, uh, you know, repercussions. So I take it that that was a, a big draw for you in terms of this legislation. It was. We estimate there's about 60,000 Oklahomans with uh, past marijuana convictions uh, who could be helped by this act. Also, the laws of marijuana in Oklahoma have been disproportionately enforced against people of color. While, you know, every one of every shape and color smokes and uses marijuana, black men are about five times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession as white men. And so I think it would be a real step forward for the state to make sure that our criminal enforcement resources are productive and going after you know, real serious crimes and that people who are incarcerated or have criminal records have the ability to get a fresh start, be productive in society. So that was real important to me. And another thing that kind of stood out to me when you were describing kind of what is on the, on the agenda for um, 820, it's the this regulatory scheme that's in place. You know, when medicinal marijuana was passed in June of uh, 2018, I believe, I think what a lot of people realized pretty quickly is there was kind of a dearth of regulation. There was people were scrambling to kind of figure out, you know, how to define things after the fact. And and it seems like this one seems a bit more forward thinking and leaning into that issue and going into regulation, you know, uh, early and often. Is that is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. The goal was to decriminalize and regulate to make sure that, you know, we don't have a uh, a criminal problem with marijuana anymore. It's a, the products would be tracked, safe, um, a regulatory system that helps the state move forward. So I'm, I'm intrigued by, um, you know, just the sheer density of dispensaries that the state of Oklahoma has currently. I understand that, you know, in the wake of um, marijuana coming uh, to a state, whether it be medicinal or recreational, there's there's bound to be kind of a wild, wild west effect, at least at the beginning when there's so many different places. But we sure do have a lot everywhere I look. And so I, I think a lot of people are wondering, so does this mean when, if you go from medicinal to recreational, are we just going to see even more of those dispensaries or, or, or what's your thought on how that how, how that plays out? Well, I'm, of course, not an economist, so I can't predict for sure. But my guess would be that the recreational marijuana market wouldn't increase the amount of dispensaries much at all. It would uh, maybe stabilize some of those dispensaries. We'd mm-hmm. have an increased market from out-of-state people who wouldn't have a you know, medical card would be able to come and purchase products in-state. Uh, I think anyone who really wants to use marijuana now, it's easy enough to get a medical card that is not going to dramatically increase the market within Oklahoma. It will regulate it a lot better. So that Yeah. And I think what my, my two cents, at least it, it, I think the ones that are doing it well and can adapt to change and are ready for regulation 
will make it and those that don't will kind of strip away. And I think attrition is natural. And then you get down to, you know, something that probably looks a little bit more, um, I don't know, like uh, proportional (laughs) to what what the needs of the state are. So, well, um, let's segue then from there, Melanie. I want to talk a little bit about the initiative petition process you know, I said at the outset, you're one of just a handful of attorneys in the state that even regularly do this kind of work. Um, and obviously, you were involved with it as it relates to State Question 820. So if you would, just kind of let our listeners know a little bit about how that process works and what your role has been in 820. Sure. So Oklahoma's initiative petition process is really long and really complicated. Um, by a lot of measures, it's the most difficult in the country. We work with a lot of uh, nationwide entities that work on ballot measures, and they are constantly telling us how difficult Oklahoma's process no is kidding. compared to other states, for sure. Um, we have one of the highest signature requirements, um, and at the same time, we have the absolute shortest time within which to gather those signatures. So we have to gather signatures in Oklahoma within a 90-day deadline. Um, And that 90 days, we don't pick those 90 days. The Secretary of State picks those 90 days for us. So it is a real fast timeline um, for a lot of signatures. There's also a bunch of other procedural hurdles that you've got to get to before you're even allowed to start circulating signatures. So we actually started working on 820 or the precursors to 820 back in 2018 before the pandemic. Um, And we had filed a measure. We had defeated a legal challenge to it. And just when we were about to start circulating signatures, March 2020 came along and uh, derailed that process. And so because we had only had a 90 day period when we were allowed to circulate signatures and there was so much uncertainty at that time, we decided to withdraw the measure because we couldn't guarantee that we could do it safely um, and decided to start over. So a couple years later, we came back, started working with stakeholders and drafting language for 820. Uh, We thought that means you have to set up a 501c4, prepare for ethics filings, um, connect with funders and stakeholders and make sure your entity is set up and ready to go uh, before you file the process. So we filed on the first business day of January, January 4th, 2022. Our goal was to qualify for the November ballot. Once you file and submit your petition, there's a legal protest period. So any person in the state uh, has 10 business days to file a protest about the legality of the law or the process, the gist at the top of the signature page that describes what the measure does. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, you can challenge a lot of things about an initiative. Or even the signatures themselves. Or Well, that actually comes later. Okay. So this initial process is just for whether the law is constitutional or whether it's set up properly, the gist is fair and not misleading. Typically, big initiatives draw a protest period and draw a protest during that period as a way to slow down the process. And we, of course, did. Um, So we spent three months litigating uh, the gist of our petition, whether it was fairly described. Um, That took about three months. Once we won that protest, we were allowed to start collecting signatures. And we had 15 days notice from the time we the Supreme Court decided our legal challenge to the time when we were allowed to start collecting signatures. So that's a very fast time to stand up a signature gathering organization. Once we were allowed to start signatures, 
we this is a statutory petition, not a constitutional petition. So we had a lower number of signatures that we had to gather, but it was still a lot. We had to gather about 95,000 valid signatures. Oh, that's more than I thought. Okay. And in order to get 95,000 valid signatures, you don't necessarily know what is going to get disqualified at the Secretary of State counting level. And we were looking at a new process, which I can talk about later. The legislature has instituted a new signature counting process. So we knew we had to gather a lot more than 95,000 signatures uh, to make sure that we had. How many did you shoot for to have that kind of that, that safety net? So we ended up turning in 118 boxes with 164,000 signatures. In oh, them. Wow. Um, and, you know, not knowing what the secretary of state's process was going to be, we were still nervous <laughs> about yeah, that. Right. Um, but we also knew that we were looking at ballot deadlines. And so we actually turned in about a month early to give the secretary of state and the rest mm-hmm. of the process enough time to count and finish the process in time to get on the November ballot. I'm hearing you walk through this process and I'm thinking, I've heard complaints about, oh, the, you know, the initiative process, you know, it's too easy to get, you know, rabble rouse some people and you get a few signatures and you get on uh, a ballot. I'm listening to this and thinking, this is a major operation from point A to point B to get that done. It is a huge operation. You, because you need so many signatures in so short of time, while we would love to rely on volunteer signature gatherers, I just don't think that that's possible under our current rules. And so we work with signature gathering firms who do this for a living, and they have processes and procedures set up to make sure that you're collecting valid signatures from real Oklahoma voters and that they're you know filling in the boxes properly and doing everything in a way that it can go through the signature counting process and result in a valid counted signature. And that requires, you know, an army of people out there gathering signatures. It requires a bunch of people in the back office who are retrieving those signatures, getting them notarized, um, because every signature in Oklahoma has to be notarized, which is not the case in most other states. Um, And then we quality check those signatures and make sure that they are, in fact, valid registered voters um, that they've signed with their legal name, um, all of the requirements under Oklahoma law to make that signature count. Um, It's a massive undertaking. Yeah. And and you you mentioned that, you know, there's some legislative response, I think, already to kind of um, kind of changing up some of the rules on this. I, I don't know that it will apply to this vote, but is there is there a change to the percentage of the vote that needs to happen in order to pass something that was generated by initiative petition? Or is, is that at least up for uh, debate in the legislature? There are. This session, there's about 30 bills Um in various states of completion uh, that are aimed at making the initiative petition process in Oklahoma even harder. So there are some bills that focus on the procedure. So they want to make this counting process even harder. (laughs) Um, They want to make the match between the signature and the Oklahoma voting rules stricter. So um, currently we count signatures if someone, you know, is registered under the name James S. Smith, but they sign their name James Smith, that would count. Under changes that are trying to be made in the legislature right now, they would make that signature not count because it doesn't match the legal registered name of the voter in the voting rules. Oh, yeah, that's um, that's tight. It Making it very difficult. And, you know, that's – you hear about – 
the goal of making the process more safe and secure, making sure that these are real voters. But there's really no evidence that we've had a mass you know, fraud on the initiative process. People sign their name. They may use an old address that they used to be registered at and forgot that they changed their voter registration. And, or they'll use the name that they use day to day, Jim Smith instead of James Smith. Those are real Oklahoma voters who have a right to have their voices heard in the petition. Um, and this type of legislation would make those signatures not count. Um, it also, of course, makes the process massively more expensive and time-consuming uh, to right, right. A process that by, you know, for those outside observers already looks like one of the hardest in the nation. There are also uh, pending legislation to require signatures be gathered um, from every county, which makes it vastly more expensive. Um, also, requirements that would increase the number of signatures that are required and would increase the amount that a proposal has to pass by at the election. So currently, you just need a majority vote to win. This would raise that threshold to 60 or even 66 percent. Yeah. And and you think about the medicinal marijuana was considered, you know, by political standards, a bit of a landslide, but it did not. I think it came just short of 60 percent. So think about the impact that would have had, you know, if imposed at that point in time. Exactly. Um, we've gone back and looked at the number of initiatives that would have satisfied the 60 percent threshold. And I think there's only four uh, that would have passed under those laws. Wow. That's uh, yeah. So that, that would have a, a big impact. You know, speaking of oddities about the 820, at least I, I've had this brought up to me by um, several of my friends who know that the firm's been involved in this initiative petition process. They, they've, they've asked me, you know, why is it that it didn't wind up on the, the general election uh, this past November? Why, why are we voting in, in March on something that's, you know, a, a pretty important issue for Oklahoma? I've got a little bit of a, an idea on that, but explain how that all took place. Sure. This was rather unfortunate. We turned in uh, our signatures on July 5th, uh, so four months in advance of the November election. And normally the signature counting process takes two to three weeks. Um, we were told that the new signature process, which was supposed to be done electronically, uh, would take would shorten that time because it's electronic, doesn't require a manual review of signatures. And uh, we're told to expect another two to three week counting process. It ended up taking more than two months to get the signatures counted and verified, which pushed us past the deadline that the state election board has to actually print the ballots because it's a long process to print the ballots, distribute them, mail them, get them in time to get ballots to overseas. And so uh, it just the process took so long administratively and there were so many hurdles set up by the legislature that it pushed us beyond the November ballot. Um, there was actually even litigation about this, whether it should be on the November ballot anyway, because the delay was not the result of uh, the signature collection process. It was a result of the administrative process of counting it, which we had no control over. Um, but the court said that we needed to. Uh, go through the entire statutory process before it could be printed. So by the time they finished, the November election ballot deadlines had passed. And so the governor set it for a March 7th special election. It's unfortunate because it will end up costing the state 
an extra one to two million dollars in mm. election costs. Um, and it means it's a turnout game. So while this measure appears to be overwhelmingly popular and has pulled really, really well, it's going to be a question of who, which side can get their supporters out uh, on a random Tuesday in March to vote on this initiative, That's which right. is not the way direct democracy is supposed to work. Yeah, close to spring break. And I mean, not to stereotype, but th- this is something that I would think that the young vote, if it comes out, you know, will could propel it across the the, the finish line. But you're, you know, the, your average uh, young voter, you hope you get them in general elections. It's even harder to get them in a random Tuesday, as you said. So, but as you said, the polling seems to be very strong. Um, and you know, I, I think if if the if the 2018 uh, vote taught us anything, you know, Oklahoma is 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 open to more change when it comes to this. And I think any of us ever would have thought in years prior. You know, of course. The thing that can also tilt it, uh, a campaign at the very end is is advertisements. Um, you know, we're starting to see, uh, at least I have, uh, you know, I'm one of the few people that I guess doesn't just stream everything. I've still got some live television. So I've, I, I'm as I see my commercials come through, I've seen a lot of uh, pro 820. Haven't seen a lot of uh, negative or uh, attack ads, but in these final days, do you anticipate that will happen? And, and what are your thoughts generally about, you know, you've you fought over the course of, a, you know, more than a year over, you know, the, the law and the things that really, you know, are the backbone of, of this state question. But what does it feel like to see it come down to, in some ways, who, who puts together the best commercial package to really <laughs> pull at your heartstrings or, or, or make you inflamed about, you know, the entire th- process? Well, I think no one loves it coming down to ads. At the same time, though, it is wonderful, I think, that the people do get a chance to make the decision on such a consequential issue for themselves. And so they can read about it. There's a ton of literature that's you know distributed about it. Um, you can pull up the petition on the Secretary of State's website and read for yourself exactly what it does. But I think it's really, really important that instead of this coming down to you know, so many of our elections recently in Oklahoma have come down to who had the R or the D by their name. And here, it's not a party issue. There are lots of Republicans that support this measure. There's a lot of Democrats that support this measure. And the people of Oklahoma get to make an independent decision about a very consequential issue for the state. And I think that is a wonderful thing. Um, And I think it's important that we maintain the ability for our direct democracy process to function. Democracy in action. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, are, are there any uh, particular resources, uh, websites uh, you send people to that say, "Look, I just I want to I want to do some some reading and getting up to speed here before the uh, before Tuesday, March seventh? Sure. The petition itself is available on the Secretary of State's website. Um, the Oklahoma Policy Institute has done a great explanation of what the measure would do, some of the arguments before arguments for and arguments against it. Um, a real real good explainer process. And of course, you can view all the ads on TV. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's a lot of information out there and we encourage everybody, all our listeners and uh, everybody out there that you're connected to, you know, be a part of this process. As as Melanie said, what a what a wonderful uh, place to live in where when something really matters and makes a difference in your life, you've got a chance to be heard. Uh, and and that only happens if you get out and, and vote next Tuesday, uh, March 7th, and, 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 and weigh in on this on this important issue for our state. Now, I, I don't want to close the door on this podcast uh, uh, yet because, um, as uh, our listeners know, if when we have a, a, someone who's uh, 
new to the show, uh, their first time, we, well, we like to, you know, dig a little deeper, peel that onion back and learn a little bit more about them in the little segment we call know that, get to know that crow. And so with, uh, with, with Melody, we did a little bit of, uh, pre-work on this just before the show began and um, uh, kind of a couple of tidbits that I thought were uh, particularly uh, interesting. But I want to start with one that just, you know, it's apropos for the discussion we've had, you know, for better or for worse, when I hear, uh, you know, people talk about the attorneys that are in, in that are working in the cannabis field or, or on marijuana related issues, there, there seems to be sort of this just expectation. Well, that's someone who's a mar- marijuana enthusiast a marijuana user, which is perfectly fine and, and, and uh, legal in most respects in, in this state. Um, but I, I think it's interesting to say that uh, it would be right to say that you're a marijuana lawyer who abstains from the use of marijuana. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's, it's kind of strange to have spent the last four years of my life working to legalize adult use marijuana and have never tried it. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, but I, 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 you know, honestly, when you told me that, it, it made me chuckle, but it also reminded me that you know, what your work has been about is, is the rule of law. It's, it's, it's dealing with how to get important issues before the people and let them decide and not about personal advocacy of what you believe is good to ingest or consume or not to. I mean, it, it really goes to show that, that, you know, where your mind is at when it comes to advocacy. And I think it's, uh, I think it's admirable, but it did, it did make me laugh because I, I think most would expect, you know, the opposite, but uh, um, thanks for sharing that with us. And of course, I didn't want to um, uh, foreclose your opportunity to talk about something I know is very important to you. And I always hear you talking about, which is your wonderful children. And, and uh, we were talking about the, the, you know, the coronavirus and the pandemic. And, you know, you were kind of remarking that, you know, you were kind of set for, for one track and then it took another track altogether. Talk about that. Sure. Well, I have two great kids, uh, Jonah, who's 10 and Clara, who's seven. Um, I stepped back a little bit from the practice of law when they were young um, as their primary caregiver and so worked part time and declared 2020 the year that they were both going to be in school for the first time, my year to lean in. And, you know, we all saw what happened in March 2020. Things got derailed a little bit. bit. (laughs) I am incredibly thankful to Crow and Dunleavy for having uh, worked with me so kindly in working. working part-time and then, you know, making major contingency plans when the pandemic hit and I was suddenly homeschooling my children. (laughs) And uh, I'm so thankful to them for that. Well, that's great. You know, uh, even if they say about best laid plans, you know, everything changes overnight, even but I don't think anybody could foresee an international <laughs> pandemic. But, um, yeah, I'm glad that we we're all able to work through that. And uh, hopefully nothing like that on the, on the horizon uh, anytime soon. But as we did say earlier, the thing that is on the most immediate horizon is next Tuesday, March 7th. It's been a wonderful uh, podcast with you, Melanie, really getting down into the, you know, to the nuts and bolts of the process that got us here. And just a nice reminder of of why this matters, why uh, democracy in action only works if we really participate. And I hope everyone does next Tuesday, March um, 7th. So uh, that is a wrap for today's episode. Uh, remember to follow us on your favorite podcast streaming platform. You can find us out there on Apple, um, Spotify, Stitcher, and and others. And if you like what you're hearing, you know, give us a rating. It, uh, it makes me feel... Uh, 
good at night. And Tyler, our producer, he just uh, he loves seeing those five star ratings and uh, we get together and talk about it and high five. So don't forget to send your ideas also for future topics that you'd like for us to cover. You can send us to send those to us at briefly legal at crowdunlovey.com. And who knows, you might just hear that topic on a future episode. We love when that happens. So until the next time, stay healthy, friends, and we look forward to the next time that we get to spend with you here on Briefly Legal. <laughs>